Norman Centuries, Episode 11, The Great Count. Welcome back. Last time we talked about Robert Giscard and his attempt to seize the throne of Constantinople. This time we turn our attention to his brother Roger, the youngest of the siblings, but the one who would leave the greatest legacy in southern Italy. Roger was the twelfth son of Tancred de Houtville, sixteen years younger than his oldest full brother Giscard. Not much is known about his early life, other than the fact that he spent it on the family estate in Normandy. He probably had the same education as his siblings, spending his formative years apprentice to a wealthier knight. By the time he was 24, all but one of his brothers had left to seek their fortunes in the south, and Roger might have been content to stay in the now empty family home, had it not been for a chance meeting with the beautiful Judith de Evreux. She was related to William the Conqueror, far above his status, but they fell in love, and before long Roger announced his intention to marry her. Unfortunately, he had neither land nor wealth, and Judith's father wasn't amused by the thought of some lowly knight stealing his daughter away. If Roger wanted her hand, he would have to find a suitable dowry, so he left for Italy to find fame and fortune. His brother Giscard was busy trying to subdue Calabria, the toe of Italy, and was glad to make use of Roger's skills. The two made daring raids across the coast, and within five years had subdued the region. The experience gave Roger a taste for more, and he knew exactly where to get it. Just across the narrow straits of Messina, less than two miles from the Calabrian seacoast, was the Arab-controlled island of Sicily, and, as luck would have it, it was in complete disarray. The Arabs had first arrived in the mid-9th century from North Africa, and spent the next hundred years wresting the island away from the Byzantines. They had finally conquered the last imperial outpost in 965, and settled down to enjoy the fruits of their labor. For a century, Sicily was a relatively peaceful part of the North African Muslim Empire, controlled by the city of Madia on the Tunisian coast. But Madia was involved in the power struggles of the Islamic world. War with Cairo abroad and civil wars at home weakened its control over the island. As communications broke down, ethnic tensions in Sicily rose. The first Arab arrivals were resentful of the Berbers who crossed over from Madia in increasing numbers, and both groups distrusted the native Greeks. By the time Roger arrived in Italy, Sicily was split between three rival emirs and a racial war between Arab and Berber. It was the perfect time to invade, and surprisingly enough, it was one of the emirs who offered the invitation. Ibn Timna was a rogue even by the standards of the time. He had seized control of Syracuse by killing his predecessor, and then helped himself to the man's widow. He then tried to expand into his neighbor's territory, the emir of Messina, who also happened to be his new wife's brother, with disastrous results. The humiliating treaty he had to sign was bad enough, but he made it worse by getting drunk and taking out his frustrations on his wife. She fled to her brother in Messina, and in a rage, he swore that he would have Ibn Timna's head. The now quite sober emir was chased out of Syracuse and had to flee to Italy for safety. Finding Roger in Calabria, he offered to partner with the Norman in exchange for a joint control of Sicily. Roger couldn't have asked for a better invitation. Though it was the middle of winter, hardly the time to start a campaign, he gathered a force of 150 knights and crossed the straits. At first all went well, The governor of Messina was tricked into an ambush and killed, and when the garrison rushed out to avenge him, they were badly mauled by the Normans. 
Unfortunately, it was Roger's youthful enthusiasm that let them down. Seeing the chance to grab Messina, and his own claim to greatness, he led a hasty attempt to rush the walls, but was driven back with heavy losses. He decided the time had come to retreat to the ships, but when he arrived at the beach, he found that a storm had driven his fleet away. For three days, the Normans were obliged to camp miserably on the beach, fending off the incessant Muslim attacks and trying to stay warm. Finally, on the fourth day, the Norman ships returned and Roger made his escape. The campaign had been discouraging, but Roger was determined. A few months later, he tried again, this time with the help of his brother Giscard, and the two of them mustered an army of 450 knights. The Muslims were alerted to the danger and were keeping up a watchful patrol of the channel, so the brothers came up with a ruse. While Giscard positioned himself at the north end of the straits, noisily preparing to cross, Roger slipped across at the southern end with 250 knights. He landed five miles from Messina and found the coast completely deserted. Marching toward the city, he intercepted a Muslim baggage train carrying the entire payroll for the Messina garrison. This stroke of luck was followed by an even bigger one. The majority of Messina's defenders had marched north to repel Giscard's expected crossing, leaving the walls bare. The moment his first soldier cleared the battlements, the inhabitants surrendered, and Roger's flag was hoisted above the city. The Muslim army on the coast, seeing the banner and realizing what had happened, fled into the interior. The Normans now had a foothold in Sicily, but there was no time to sit back and enjoy it. After spending a Thanksgiving service hosted by the city's Greek population, the brothers joined their Arab ally Ibn Timna and headed deep into the island's central plateau. Their goal was to take the great fortress of Enna and deal a knockout blow to Ibn Timna's brother-in-law, but when they arrived, they found that the castle was completely impregnable. Even worse, the emir had gathered his entire army and was delighted that these pesky Normans had strayed so deeply into his territory. Seeing the chance to destroy them once and for all, he launched an immediate ferocious assault. It was the first time the Muslims of Sicily had come face to face with a Norman army, and it would be an experience that would be repeated many times with the same result over the next three decades. Though they outnumbered the Normans many times over, the light Arab cavalry stood no chance against the heavily armored knights. The battle was quick and, from the Muslim point of view, disastrous. Thousands were killed or captured, and the survivors fled to the safety of their fortress and refused to come out again. Enough spoils were taken from the battle to make every soldier who participated a wealthy man. The bewildered Arabs concluded that the Normans were invincible, and more importantly, the Normans believed it as well. In the coming years, they would always be vastly outnumbered, but would never hesitate to fight. The brothers had won a stunning success, but were divided on how to exploit it. Giscard, as always, had concerns on the mainland, where yet another revolt was beginning, and he needed to withdraw, but Roger wanted to continue the advance. There was no question of trying to storm Enna. They would need heavy siege equipment for that but they could at least extract protection money from the surrounding towns and further erode the emir's support. Giscard's argument eventually prevailed. He was, after all, the older brother. But Roger stayed long enough to seize the town of Troina, a largely Greek settlement on a hill which enjoyed a strategic view of the surrounding plain. Tensions between the brothers, which had always simmered, began to boil over, but Roger had no choice but to obey. By Christmas he had returned to Italy with the last of his troops, and was summoned to Giscard's court. There, to his astonishment, he was greeted by the long-lost Judith. 
Marriages in medieval Europe were almost always carefully calculated affairs, with feelings seldom entering the equation. Roger and Judith, however, were that rare love story in an age of political unions. Judith's father was a powerful and ambitious noble who was determined to use his daughter to increase his connections. But Judith was in love and cleverly escaped him by joining a convent. There she was free from the attentions of better qualified suitors and waited patiently for five years. By that time, her father had quarreled with Duke William and been forced to flee Normandy, taking his daughter with him. When they arrived in Italy, Judith eagerly renounced her vows and made straight for Giscard's court. After their joyful reunion, Roger proposed to marry her immediately, and this time the humbled father gave his permission. This, however, brought up a rather embarrassing fact. Roger was about to marry into one of the great families of Normandy, but didn't have any land to give her as a dowry. He had plenty of wealth, his recent campaign had provided that, but Giscard had refused to grant him any territory. The problem was that the older brother was jealous. He had had to fight for everything he owned. His early time in Italy had been ferociously difficult, and now his little brother was expecting him to just hand over some land. But there was more than just petty resentment in this. Giscard recognized the family ambition in Roger, and hesitated to give him an independent source of power. Land would allow Roger to have a steady income apart from Giscard's control, and turn him into a potential threat. Roger, however, was no longer the inexperienced youth who had entered his brother's service, and he was no longer satisfied with being treated as a pawn. He sent a formal request for land to Giscard, along with a notice that he had 40 days to respond before Roger would resort to force. The older brother was not amused. Gathering an army, he swept into Calabria. Roger was ready for him, and the two sides were soon rampaging back and forth throughout the countryside. Giscard managed to trap his brother inside a town, but when he demanded entrance, the villagers sided with Roger and slammed the gate shut in his face. At this point, Giscard realized that ravaging his own territory was counterproductive, so he decided to end the war by trickery instead of force. He had supporters inside the town, and if he could make contact with them, there was the chance to undermine Roger from within. He slipped inside and met with his partisans, but the plan backfired when some passerbys recognized him. Giscard was nearly killed immediately, only managing to save his skin by a mixture of bluffs, threats, and pleading. Considerably worse for the wear, but alive, he was hauled in front of Roger. It must have been gratifying for the younger brother to sit in judgment of the older for once, but Roger was too shrewd to give vent to his frustrations. They both needed each other, and no petty feelings of revenge could trump their pragmatism. Roger may have taken his time to let Giscard feel the pressure, but that was every bit as much public theater as what came next. Giscard was brought to an old Roman bridge, still called Ponte Giscardo to this day, and Roger publicly embraced him, weeping loudly and promising to never let such enmity come between them again. Giscard, for his part, understood the lesson perfectly. The two never quarreled again. With that out of the way, Roger could once again concentrate on Sicily. Unfortunately, the situation had deteriorated in his absence. His ally Ibn Timna had been assassinated, which was not such a great loss since Roger never intended to share power. But far more seriously, the local populations no longer viewed the Normans as liberators. Of course, Roger only had himself to blame for this latter development, as his policy of intimidation was useful for enriching himself, but terrible at building loyalty. 
The area he had conquered was full of Christians and potential supporters, but he had been too busy extorting money to cultivate local support. The lesson was driven home almost immediately. Roger returned to his base in Troina to continue campaigning, and installed his new wife in the local palace. The moment he had departed with his army, the annoyed Greeks of the town made common cause with the Muslims and rose up en masse. Judith somehow managed to fight her way through the streets and made it to the safety of a nearby castle. The next day Roger returned, but the opposition was so fierce that he was only able to join his bride, not free her. They were trapped there throughout the winter in increasingly severe conditions. They had only one blanket between them, and provisions ran so short that Roger's knights were forced to eat their own horses. Finally, in the early months of the next year, they found a way out. Their besiegers had access to the town's wine supply, which they were consuming to stay warm. As time went by, their discipline started to slip, until one particularly cold night, the lot of them got roaring drunk and neglected to post a single guard. Roger and his men slipped out of the castle and retook the town, slaughtering everyone they could find. Both sides were chastened by the experience, and Roger never forgot the lesson. From that day, he scrupulously courted all of his subjects, regardless of their faith or ethnicity. It was good that he did so, because the Muslims were now on the offensive. The North African ruler of Madia was determined to reassert his authority over Sicily, and he sent two armies under the command of his sons to crush the Norman upstarts. They marched inland and met Roger just west of Troina in a town called Cerami. The odds were hopelessly stacked against him. The Saracen army numbered 35,000, against which he could only muster 130 knights and 300 foot soldiers. But the Normans had an unshakable confidence, and, since Roger had situated himself on top of a hill, the better position. For three days the Muslim army waited for the Normans to come down. On the fourth day their patience ran out, and they charged up the slope eager to come to grips. The battle was furiously contested and lasted all day, but in the end, the Norman superior discipline prevailed. Repeated charges failed to break their line, and hours of charging uphill exhausted the Muslims. When they withdrew, the Normans finally came down after them, turning an ordered retreat into a rout. By nightfall, the Muslim camp and baggage was in Norman hands, and the Saracen army was hopelessly shattered. It had been one of the most extraordinary battles in history. A tiny force had not only fended off an army 70 times its size, it had also decisively beaten it. If there was any doubt about the superiority of Norman arms before, there was none now. Despite still controlling three-fourths of Sicily, Muslim resistance was effectively broken. They would never again be on the offensive or offer a united defense. From that moment on, the final conquest was only a matter of time. Exactly how much time, however, was unclear. Roger followed up the victory with an attempt to take Palermo and deal the knockout blow, but the effort was a fiasco. Palermo was the third largest city in the Mediterranean. With a quarter of a million population, only Constantinople and Cairo were bigger, and it would need a sizable army to conquer. Roger managed to talk Giscard into participating, and providing the needed firepower, but the city still had access to the sea, making a land siege useless. Even worse, the campsite Roger chose was infested by tarantulas, whose appearance and painful bite did a thorough job of undermining everyone's morale. After only three months, they cut their losses and withdrew, determined not to return until they had a fleet. 
Giscard left for Italy to make the necessary arrangements, but was delayed for seven years putting down revolts and fending off a major Byzantine attack. In the meantime, Roderick exploited the old struggle of Berber versus Arab to keep his enemies on their heels. He had learned patience from his chronic manpower shortage and was content to slowly advance while consolidating his conquest. In 1068, the remaining Berber forces on the island managed to ambush him while he was out raiding, demanding his surrender in the face of overwhelming force. To their surprise, he cheerfully opted to attack instead, smashing their army with a series of cavalry charges. The Muslims hadn't risked an open battle with him for a while, and Roger made full use of his victory by engaging in a little psychological warfare. He had messages detailing the results of the battle written with the blood of the fallen Saracens, and had them sent by carrier pigeon to Palermo. When he followed it up with his army, backed up by Giscard's long-awaited fleet, the city surrendered almost immediately. The terms Roger offered showed just how much he had learned since the revolt of Troina. Palermo was obliged to accept the usual Norman castle, but its Muslims were free to practice their religion as long as they recognized the authority of the state. This common-sense solution, the tolerance of the outnumbered, was the cornerstone of Norman rule. It was a slow and agonizing process. The full conquest took an additional two decades, but Roger extended the same offer wherever he went. The Greek population had its churches rebuilt and refurbished at state expense, and the Muslim population, still 80% of Sicilians, was allowed to live and worship where they had for a century. The local governments, tasked with collecting taxes and enforcing justice, were kept in place, absorbing both Orthodox and Muslims into the new administration. The only serious resistance that was left was from the emir of Syracuse, but Roger would have to confront him on his own. After Palermo fell, Giscard left the island never to return, taking a large part of the army with him. The first step to conquer Syracuse was to make sure it was cut off from North Africa. There were still Berber troops scattered around Sicily, and the emir of Madia was making ominous noises. He had been cut off from the interior of North Africa by civil war, and badly needed Sicily's wheat. Roger, however, cleverly neutralized him by offering to supply Madia with all the food he wanted through an exclusive trading contact. The emir of Syracuse struck back by raiding a convent in Roger's territory and placing several of the captured nuns in his harem. This threatened to set off a religious war, something Roger wanted to avoid at all cost, and he acted at once. Raising the largest army he had ever mustered, he sent his fleet to blockade the city by sea and marched overland. The fleet arrived first and engaged the Muslim ships in the same waters where, exactly 1,500 years before, the Athenian navy had been defeated during the Peloponnesian War. The struggle this time was just as decisive. The emir took personal command of his ships, but had the misfortune to slip overboard. Before his startled sailors could attempt a rescue, the heavy armor had pulled him straight to the bottom. Syracuse resisted for a few days, but without its emir, it didn't have the heart for a real struggle and surrendered. The victory extinguished Muslim power in Sicily. There were still remnants to be mopped up, a process not completed till 1091, 30 years after he had set foot on the island, but it left Roger as one of the most powerful men in the Mediterranean. For the rest of his life, he concentrated on increasing the prosperity of his subjects and refused to be drawn into any larger struggles. When the call came for the First Crusade, he was virtually the only great prince who didn't respond. 
heavily outnumbered by Muslims in his own territory and dependent on his trade with North Africa for wealth, the last thing he wanted was a religious war. For all intents, he remained neutral and pressured his Muslim trading partners to be neutral as well, which turned out to be a good policy. By the turn of the century, Sicily was more stable, prosperous, and secure than it had ever been. Trade flourished, the arts were blossoming, and the currency was sound. Thanks to the crusading movement, the trade of Europe and the Levant flowed through the markets of Palermo and Messina, greatly enriching all involved. Roger's only sadness was that his beloved Judith wasn't around to enjoy it with him. She had died in 1080 after presenting her husband with four daughters. A second marriage produced three more girls along with two sons, before she died as well. Roger was now in his 60s and feeling his age. His most pressing concern was who would follow him. The two legitimate sons clearly wouldn't. The first didn't survive childhood, and the second had leprosy. There was an illegitimate son named Jordan who had proved to be a dashing commander in several of his father's campaigns, but he died of a fever in 1092. That year, Roger married for the third time, and in 1095, his new wife safely delivered a son. He was named after his happy father, who could now rest assured that his name would be continued. Six years later, Roger expired peacefully in his bed, having ruled wisely and well. His military victories had been legendary, but it was his administration that had truly been brilliant. He was that most rare of leaders, one who not only knew how to conquer, but more importantly, how to build. Just 60 years before, Roger's celebrated oldest brother, William Ironarm, had first set foot on Sicilian shores. He had won his reputation there, but it had been the young, overlooked Roger who claimed it. Long after William has been forgotten, Roger is still remembered fondly by Sicilians today, who gave him the nickname The Great Count. The last of the Houtful brothers had immortalized the family name in Sicily, but his greatest legacy was his son. Join me next time as I look at Roger II, the first and most brilliant king of Sicily. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.